0: Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation this morning. The book of Revelation, Revelation 21, and we'll get there in just a minute. We'll read verses 1 through 8. But before we do that, I want to remind you of a few other passages of Scripture. The Bible says in Psalm 119:105, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In Matthew 7 and verse 14, Jesus said, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And so if the way to follow God is a narrow way, and if the way to follow God is one that many people do not find, we definitely need God's help in the process. And if you are following God, if you are walking in His way, then we need God's Word to guide and direct our footsteps and to direct our path, to direct our choices. Our focus is extremely important in reaching our final destination. A farmer once told me that in order to plow a straight furrow across his field, he needed to focus on a fence post clear on the other side. His focus on that far distant point helped him to plow a straight row. You, If you've been an athlete, you know this, and I've talked to many who have competed in various sporting events, and especially in track and field, those who are running those races know that in order to win the race, you need to be focused on the finish line. You need to be pointed in the right direction. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says, "...looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, looking to Jesus. During the last few months in our nation, as things have continued to uh, go on, as more and more turmoil takes place, I believe many Christians so-called and people in general have completely lost their focus, if they ever had it, they lost their focus on God. According to the statistics that are available out there even in the last few weeks, uh, church attendance, and this is including online attendance and everything, has gone down 30% across the board. Didn't take much to get people to stop going to church. According to those that keep track of the Bible reading apps like some of you use, Bible reading has gone down by 20% in the last four months. 20%! That means one in five people who were reading their Bible aren't doing it anymore. Now, you may be sitting here this morning and hear those numbers and say, "Well, we're here. We are at church, and I did read my Bible this week." But I think even for the most faithful, it's important that we be reminded about where our focus should be. And so I'm thankful you're here in church. I'm. Thankful if you're reading your Bible. I'm thankful for your walk with the Lord. But I think it's important for us to be reminded of what God is doing and where God is taking us. Because as we look at these problems, is it because of a lack of accountability? Is it because of just added stress? Or maybe there's too many distractions? Well, I think the reasons for the decline in spiritual focus for people could be many. I think as a believer, as a follower of God, it is important for us to renew our focus on the Lord. Remember what He has done for you and look up. Look up. A proper focus on God's eternal purpose and plan will encourage you to remain faithful as you patiently wait His return. Where's your focus this morning? I don't know about you this morning, but I woke up this morning I had a lot on my mind. My first thought this morning when I woke up is like, oh, I better hurry. I gotta get to church. (laughs) Oh, I got a lot of things I need to do. And maybe some of you, even here sitting this morning, you think, yeah, I I hope he gets done on time, because I got I got things I gotta do. I got someplace I've got to go. Maybe you think, no, I've done a good job. This is the Lord's day. I've set it aside. But boy, tomorrow's coming. Monday's coming. I need to find another job. I, I need to go get. The job I was doing, I need to get it finished. I need to go find a little more money. I need to pay this bill. I need to go take care of this problem or that problem or the other problem. There's so many things vying for our attention. As a Christian, we need to step back and say, God, where do you want me to focus? You said your word will direct my footsteps, my path. We're to look to Jesus, and I want to challenge you this morning to look up. Look up. Revelation chapter 21 Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And I love verse 4, which says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying neither shall there be any more pain. Can you imagine that day? No more sorrow. No more pain. No more tears. No crying again. Why? He says, for the former things are passed away. And verse 5 says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his son, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, notice, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I don't know where you came from mentally this morning, but I hope that you'll join me for the next few minutes as we look at these verses together from God's Word that we'll be reminded, we'll be challenged, we'll be encouraged by what God is doing and, and where He's taking us and that we will look up and be reminded of the home in heaven that God is preparing for every one of His children. We'll see five things together this morning about heaven. Notice, first of all, in verses 1, 2, and 5, heaven will be a place where God will make all things new. You see it here in verse 1, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Down in verse 2, we see a new Jerusalem. In verse number 5, he says, I make all things new. Heaven is a place where God will make all things new. Now there's new in terms of time and there's new in... In terms of quality, the word used here to talk about making all things new is talking about new in quality. He's going to make it all new again. There's this is going to be an earth, a new earth where there's no night. You know, in the book of Genesis, the Bible says that as long as the earth remains, there will be seasons. There will be spring and summer and fall and winter, and there will be day and night. But he says in this new earth, there will be no night. Why? Because the light of Jesus Christ will shine through. There'll be no more need of the same things that we have, the sun, moon, and stars. In those sense, we will have the eternal light of God. This new heaven, this new earth, will not just be a physical transformation, but it'll also be an ethical transformation. This new earth will be an earth with no sin, with no pain. With no suffering, can I say it? With no curse. We live under the curse today. And even if we're saved, we still feel the effects of the curse. We get old, we die, we get creaky, we fall apart, we get sick. Life is hard. But He's making a new heaven and a new earth. Notice also He's making a new Jerusalem. This Jerusalem, this was the holy city. This was the city back in the Old Testament where the children of Israel would come and they would worship God in the temple. And it was a special place for them. But that old Jerusalem was not able to fulfill for them permanently what the new Jerusalem will be able to provide for every believer. See, the old Jerusalem was a place where they would go and they would worship God in the temple it was the place they would come together, but the priest was the one that had to go into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice to God. But this new Jerusalem is a place, and it tells us here, this is a place where God will dwell with them. See, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they had built that tabernacle and they could see the cloud, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the presence of God. But they couldn't fully experience His presence. They just got a taste. When it came time to construct the temple, people praised God. They glorified Him because the presence of God filled the temple. But they couldn't fully experience His presence because they were still sinners. But he's preparing a place, this new Jerusalem, this city of God, the city foursquare. If you study further on into chapter 21, you can see a description of this beautiful city, the new Jerusalem, with its foundation made of gigantic jewels and its gates made out of pearls. This city that's 1,500 miles each direction, that's north. And east, so you got a big square, but it's also a cube. It's 1,500 miles tall. This is a gigantic city. You can read the description and the measurements of it. This was a city not made for a small handful of people. If you draw this out, this the size of this just in square miles would take up literally over half of the United States. And it's not just square, it's cube. This is a gigantic city that God has created for all who are believers. There are some religions that teach that God's only going to save a handful. Some 144,000 are all that can expect to go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that He has prepared this place for His bride. Who is the bride of Christ? It is those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But this city, He has adorned it as a bride. He's made this city beautiful, just like a bride gets herself as beautiful as she can make herself for her husband on her wedding day. And he says here that this city has been prepared. It makes me remember what Jesus said back in John 14. And he says, I I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. and If it were not so, I would have told you so. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you that when I come again, there ye may be with me also. This is that place that he has spent the last 2,000 years preparing for his believers. What a wonderful place to go. This new heaven, this new earth, this new Jerusalem God is fulfilling every promise that He ever made. He promised His people back in John 14 that He would prepare a place, and here we read of the fulfillment of that promise. How many unfulfilled promises have you experienced in life? You say, well, too many to count. You've been promised things by your spouse. You've been promised things by a parent. You've been promised things by a, a coworker. You've been promised things by a customer. You've been promised things by your boss that have not come to pass. Why? Because they don't have all power. But here God is saying, I've prepared this place. I'm fulfilling this promise to you. So we see a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem But then in verse 5, we see that He will make all things new. Now, there's not time to look at all of the Old Testament prophecies that point towards this passage in Revelation. But suffice to say, the book of Isaiah especially is full of prophecy that is speaking about this new heaven and new earth. And I want to just read for you one verse because it tells us something very spectacular about this new place that God is going to make. It says in Isaiah 65:17, "For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind." Can you imagine a place so wonderful that you can't even remember all of the struggles and difficulties of this life? He said that the former things don't even come to mind. You know what I'm talking about in part, right? When you're really enjoying yourself and things are going well, maybe you've got your family together, maybe you're with a friend, maybe you're doing something that you really enjoy. For just a moment, you forget about all the problems of the world. You, you forget about what's going on and you just are able to enjoy yourself in the moment. you ever experienced that? Maybe, maybe just a little bit. Those are nice times. We enjoy those times. We crave those times, don't we? Just for a little bit on Wednesday night, we got to laugh at some crazy people, I being one of them. And maybe for a moment, we just forgot some of the difficulties and struggles and we just had fun fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ and and laughing and having some good, clean fun. But you know what? That program got over and we went home. And we got up Thursday morning and the problems were still there. The the struggle was still there. the, The pain was still there. But the Bible teaches us that this new place that God is preparing for us will be so wonderful. We will be so full of praise to God and rejoicing of Him and enjoying all that He has prepared for us that we won't even remember all those things that were before. That's going to have to be a pretty incredible place, isn't it? Because just like you and me, if we even just stop for a minute and just kind of think, our mind often runs back to the, oh, this problem. Oh, this is going on. Oh, i got to figure this out. What am I going to do about that? A lot of those things going on right now, aren't there? Questions without answers. Problems without solutions. People having to do things they never thought they'd have to do before. Some of you are looking to find financial help in places you probably didn't expect to find it six months ago or ever have to worry about. Some of you were concerned about health things that a year ago, we would say, what are you talking about? Some of you may have gone through some things recently or be about to go through something that if you were to find out today what was going to happen this week, you wouldn't want to even go into the week. There's a lot of struggle in this world. But He's preparing a place where all things will be made new. What a wonderful place. He says here that this new heaven and new earth, back in verse 1, will have no more sea. There was no more sea. Why does He say that? Well, throughout the book of Revelation, the sea is always the place where the evil and the wickedness come out of. So to have this new heaven and new earth with no chance of Satan, no chance of sin, no chance of evil ever coming back in to possess or to attack or to bring any sort of problem in. It is, he is completely shut out in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. He's making all things new. A lot in this world to be concerned about. I want to encourage you this morning. Look up. Heaven is a place where God will make all things new. Secondly, we see in verse 3 that heaven is a place where God will dwell with believers forever. Oh, this follows right in line with what we talked about, the New Jerusalem. Because this New Jerusalem is the place where God will dwell with His children. Do You see it in verse 3? He says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. The language here in verse 3 has so much that is fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises that God made to His people. What were some of those promises? Well, there was a man named Abram who lived in the Ur of the Chaldees, and God came to him and spoke to him. This was a man that followed God. And he told Abram, whose name later became Abraham, right? And he said to him, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to be, uh, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, He told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, this promised land. I'm going to bless you. Do you see that blessing being fulfilled, that that promise being fulfilled here in verse 3? He's made a place that can never be taken away. The nation of Israel, even to this day, is always having to work to hang on to that place. But God is preparing a place for His people that's even greater than the promised land ever could have been for the nation of Israel. He's preparing this eternal home in heaven where God will dwell with us. And He even uses the word here, the tabernacle of God. See, the tabernacle was a dwelling place. It was where God came to dwell with His people. And so when the children of Israel made this big tent... According to God's specifications, it was a dwelling place for God. And God is saying here in verse number 3, no longer is that dwelling place just restricted to the Old Testament tabernacle or the Old Testament temple or even just in the hearts of believers. Now He's saying, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm just going to be with you all the time and for eternity See, that even harkens clear back to the book of Genesis where we read about Adam and Eve who walked with God and talked with God. God was with them, but then sin broke that relationship. Sin ended the possibility of God dwelling with them, and that's why God had to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that God could dwell with us and that we could dwell with Him. Because He wiped away all of our sin. He forgave it. He put it as far as the east is from the west and He remembers it no more. And so God is preparing a new place for us and heaven is a place where God will dwell with believers forever. He says He will dwell with them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be with them and be their God this word translated people here it's tough to see this in the English because you've got various tenses and things but we understand this is not just a singular people like the nation of Israel singular people this is talking about multiple peoples people groups nations because in the Old Testament remember those promises were to a specific people group the nation of Israel But in the New Testament, after Christ died on the cross for our sin, and and then as the gospel went out to the Gentiles, we see later that God opened this up to all peoples. And that's where He's coming to now in verse number 3, that they shall be His people, people from all nations, people from all tribes, people from all tongues and all languages. Praise the Lord for this new heaven and new earth that He's preparing. Praise the Lord that this is a place that God will dwell in with us forever. And it doesn't matter where you came from this morning. You can be His people too. If you'll trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Heaven is a place where God will dwell with believers forever. I want you to notice thirdly, verse 4, heaven is a place where God will wipe away all tears. You will deal with pain and sorrow in this life you may be dealing with pain and sorrow right now. You will deal with death and tears. It is part of the brokenness that comes as a result of sin. But heaven is a place where God will wipe away all tears. When Jesus, before He ascended up into heaven, He told His disciples that He would leave them a comforter. This was the Holy Spirit who would come to dwell in them, to encourage them, to help them. And I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us today. Do you know what it's like to walk in the Spirit? To walk in the Spirit means to have God's comforting hand, God's encouraging help along the way. It means to have the conviction that God brings on your heart when you're straying away from Him and walking into sin. Jesus left His Spirit with us, the Holy Spirit. And He dwells inside of us. But you know as well as I do, even for the most serious Christian in here, there are days and there are times when we fail big time when it comes to walking in the Spirit. And instead we walk according to our flesh. But there's coming a day when God will dwell with us and that God will wipe away all tears. He'll be able to comfort us perfectly because there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. See, all that God has left us with right now, with His Word and with the Holy Spirit, all, all of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel, what they saw in the tabernacle and what they saw in the temple, All of these things were God at work fulfilling His plan step by step by step. And you know as well as I do, sometimes if you just take your focus and you just look right in one little place at what's going on in one situation, it's hard to get the big picture, right? That's one of the great things about Revelation. It's now bringing to fulfillment all of these things that have been happening little by little Day by day, sometimes these these events were tens of years, sometimes hundreds of years, sometimes even thousands of years apart. And from a human perspective, because we can only see such a tiny little fraction of what's really going on, it's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to get down. That's why we need to look up. We need to step back and say, God, I can't see everything you're doing, but thank you for your word that explains to me how little by little you've been fulfilling your plan exactly on time, according to your time, not my time. And you've done it in such a way that shows great patience and love with people that you sent your son to save sinners. You didn't save good people, you saved bad people. Praise the Lord for that. Because if He only saved good people, let me let you in on a secret, you wouldn't be saved. Because there's none good but God. I'm so thankful that He saved bad people. And when we step back and say, well, look at at what I did. Stop. Let's look at what He has done. And let's look at what He's doing. Look up. Heaven is a place where there be no more crying. Heaven is a place where God's work will be completed. Look at chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. And please, I know there's a lot more in these verses, but uh, we're not going to be here all day, I promise. But I want to look at verses 6 and 7. So if I'm skipping over some things, I'd love to take some time to talk. This is such a rich study and next week, Lord willing, we'll be talking about heaven a little more. But verse 6, He, he completes His work, we say, and He said unto me, It is done. Can you remember another time that God said that something was done? In fact, He said, It is finished. Now, those are two different words. I understand, but he's talking about the same idea. Something has been completed. See, when Jesus hung there on the cross with your sin and my sin laid upon his shoulders with the sin of all humankind throughout all of history laid upon him, and God turned his back on his very own begotten son. He turned away, and as Jesus hung there, he cried out, It is finished why because he had died on the cross for our sin he had made the payment for your sin and for my sin but even though that was finished i'm so thankful that he wasn't finished because three days later he rose again he said it is finished the work was done but jesus wasn't finished he wasn't done working he wasn't done interceding he wasn't done serving he wasn't done doing his work Because Jesus has a great work, and it's more than just saving you from your sin. It's also preparing a place for you and giving you eternal life in heaven. Sometimes as a Christian, we spend so much time looking back that we forget to look up and look forward and realize there's still great days ahead. For a Christian, you can always say the best is yet to come. Too often, though, in our country today, for example, well, the best years were in the past. Often you hear in churches, well, the good old days. I'm thankful for the good days that God had, for the things that God did, but the best is yet to come. And if you get discouraged and quit walking with God because of some situation or some problem in this world or something that just doesn't seem to make sense, you can't get it all straight in your head, stop trying to figure everything out and look up. The best is yet to come. He says that He's teaching us here in these verses that heaven is a place where God's work will be completed. The work of the new heaven and the new earth is completed. The new Jerusalem is complete. But also the work of salvation has been complete. say, well, I thought He completed that on the cross. He did. But the Christian life isn't just about salvation. It starts with salvation. That's the beginning of that relationship with God. And then there's a process we refer to called sanctification. You can't be sanctified before you're saved. Sanctified is that process that God works in us, not to save us more, but to change us more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the process of spiritual growth. So salvation's where it starts. Sanctification is the process as it continues. But for Christians, we're looking forward to glorification. That's the day when we are like Him and we shall see Him, for we shall be with Him in heaven and there'll be no more sin and all of the struggle be gone we will be with Him in heaven forever. God's not done with His work, but He will be one day. It will be done. Heaven is a place where God's work will be completed. The work of salvation has been completed. He says here in verse number 6, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This is a a figure of speech where it highlights two opposite polar ends of something, but it's not just to draw focus to the ends, it's to draw focus and say, I am the beginning, I'm the end, and I'm everything in the middle, too. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet, and he says, I'm not just A, I'm not just Z, I'm all the other letters too. I've got it all. I'm the beginning and the end and everything in between. He's done the work. See, salvation is not a work that you or I do. It's only by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Why? Because He's the beginning and He's the end of our salvation. It's all in Him and all through Him and all to Him. Praise be to Him forever and ever. Amen. You see, God's work, He's demonstrating, as He calls Himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, He's demonstrating His sovereign power over all of history from beginning to end. And in heaven, we will fully experience all the glories and all the benefits of our salvation. But He's not done there because at the end of verse 6, He says, And I will give unto Him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life really again every time as i read through these verses it's just my mind is drawn back to the work of jesus christ and to the work of god in the old testament do you remember in john chapter 4 as jesus as he's making this trip and he says i need to go through samaria why because there's a woman there who's been married a bunch of times she's an outcast from society No one wants anything to do with her. In fact, even the other ladies don't want anything to do with her. So she comes at an off time to draw water out of a well because she doesn't want to be around other the other ladies of her town. You know, there's some ladies like that today, too. They they can't, they they don't want to be around anybody else because they're afraid of what people are going to say. Look at your choices. Look at what you did. Look at this. Look, look at that. And there's some men struggling with that too. That even keeps some people from the church, doesn't it? But it didn't keep Jesus from going to her. That day, as He sat by the well, His disciples had gone into town to get something to eat. They wanted to take care of their physical need, but Jesus knew there was a spiritual need that was more important. He sat there by the well that day, and that woman came out to draw water. And Jesus said... If you'll drink of the water that I can give you or that I will give you, you will have everlasting life. You will never thirst again. That woman was so excited. That she dropped everything she had she ran back to her town and all those people she didn't want to be around now she wanted to tell them what she had found out because she said come see a man who told me all the things that I've ever done said come hear about this guy he can give us eternal life he can give us the water that will wash away all sin and make it so we never thirst again and remember his disciples came back out to him and they said master here do you need some lunch here's some food what have you he said I've had meat that you know not of and he says behold Look into the fields. They are white, all ready to harvest. I believe God still has a great harvest that He is working to bring in. You know why I believe that? Because He hasn't come back yet. And He says in His Word, He teaches us that God is not slack, right? Concerning His promises, some men count slackness, but His long suffering to usward not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance so when life seems hard when it seems difficult and you look around and say god what are you doing why aren't you coming back remember god is delaying his return because he's long suffering he's waiting for all of his children to come home and praise the lord that he waited for you and that he waited for me god didn't have to wait past September of 1987 when I accepted Christ to come back. He could have come back before that, couldn't he? He was under no obligation to delay his return until you got saved, but he delayed himself because he loved you and he's long-suffering. And now he says in heaven, there's this fountain And I'll give to all those who are thirsty the water of life freely. Drink and drink and drink some more. Heaven is a place where God's work will be completed. I want you to think for just a minute before I give you the last big point this morning on another wonderful passage of Scripture that I think helps to shed some light for us on, on what it's like to wait on the Lord's return. Because we, I get excited when I read this stuff. I get excited about heaven and what God is doing and what He's provided for us. But I say, come on, what are we doing? Let's go, let's go now. People throughout all of history have been struggling with the same thing. And in Hebrews chapter 11, and what we read is some often referred to as the Hall of Faith, we read about a group of believers who were trusting in God for their salvation but they hadn't even seen the Messiah come yet. Think about all those Old Testament saints. They were saved by their faith as well, weren't they? And it was because of the work of of Christ on the cross that paid for their sin, right? I, I believe everybody's saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's not that Abraham wasn't saved through the blood of Christ, he was just looking forward instead of believing in what had happened, he's believing in what would happen. God had something very special to say about these people in Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They hadn't experienced it all. They hadn't seen all the answers yet. But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth... Are you persuaded of what God is doing? Are you fully convinced of God's truth in your life? If you are, and if I am, then when we walk out of this place and we begin to struggle and we begin to doubt and we begin to get distracted and find ourselves living in sin instead of walking with the Lord, what should we do? Go back to His Word and say, God, convince me all over again. God, persuade me. God, help me. He said they were persuaded and they embraced them. That means they hung on tight. You know what it's like when you haven't seen a family member, or a friend for a really long time and you go to see them like I felt when Simon Peter finally got back from Africa after he'd spent all those months over there. And, and Brother Joe was here with me. And I think, Brother Larry, you were here too, weren't you? And, and, and Billy was here. And, and he got back from the airport and came in the parking lot. And all I saw in the car was a van full of smiles. The whole Ngoga clan was smiling from ear to ear. Why? Because Daddy was home. Husband was home. And he got out of the car and I gave him a big hug. And you wouldn't believe this, but I'm going to tell you it's true. Brother Joe outran me to the car. (laughs) He's got some wheels. Why? Because his friend was home. And he embraced him. And he hung on. And he didn't want to let go. Why? Because that which was lost is found. (laughs) That which was away is now home. And he's saying these people, these Old Testament believers, they embraced, they hung on to the truth. They were convinced by it, they embraced it, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. When they looked at all the struggle and all the pain and suffering around, they said, This isn't my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Notice the rest of the verses here. The verse 14, he says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Where's your allegiance this morning? What country are you seeking? I'm so thankful for this country that God's given us to live in here. But folks, this country is not the answer to all of our problems. And no matter what your position is on anything, if your hope is in the people and the leadership of this country, your hope is in the wrong place. Now, we ought to pray for our leaders. We're going to encourage our leaders. You should go out and vote for what you believe is right. All those things are good things as citizens of America. But ultimately, if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of a much greater place, even than America. They were seeking a different country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Verse 15, he's saying, if they were thinking more about where they came from, just like Lot and his wife, when she turned around and looked back because she was more mindful of where she had come from rather than thinking about where God was trying to take her to. Folks, don't be so caught up with the, ugh, the mess of this world that we, we can't live for the Lord. There's so many Christians today that are just shut down spiritually because of all the mess around I don't know what to say. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to cause any problems. I, I do care and I want people to know. And, you know, I, I, what do I do? What do I do? And so we just sit on our hands and stop. The devil loves that. Folks, yes, we want to love. Yes, we want to care. But let's go forward by faith. Realizing we're, we're not ultimately of this country, we have a home in heaven. And verse 16 says, But now they desire a better country that is heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Where's that city? Revelation 21. The new Jerusalem. So heaven is a place where God will make all things new. Heaven is a place where God will dwell with believers forever. Heaven is a place where there will be no more tears. Heaven is a place where God's work will be completed. Finally this morning, heaven is a place where there will be no more sin. Now I will tell you right now, this last point will either encourage you or it may cause you to fear depending on which side of this you are. But I think if you're even fearful after reading this verse, there is still encouragement for you as well. But listen, because this, all of a sudden there's a transition here. He says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's up to now we're talking about the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He's going to wipe away all tears. It's going to be this wonderful place. He's the Alpha and the Omega. It's done. It's finished. It's completed. But you need to pay attention. Because while heaven is going to be an absolutely wonderful place, it's also going to be a place where there's no more sin. Folks, if we're honest, we're all sinners. So the question is, how are you going to get to heaven if you're a sinner? Well, some people, they'll wait till the offering plate's passed and they'll put some extra money in and say, maybe God will see that I gave some extra money and that will cover up my sin. Other people will say, well... When I go from here, that was a good message this morning. I want to go to heaven. So when I go from here, I'm going to go find somebody. I'm going to be kind to somebody this week. I'm just going to try to be a better person. You know what the Bible says about that? It says all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't do enough good to get to heaven. And there's no sin in heaven. So what are we going to do? I'm so thankful for the precious blood of Jesus Christ that washes away all sin. And if you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you can trust in the blood of Christ to wash away all sin. But if you're not sure of that in your life today, if you're not convinced that your sin has been washed away, if you are not embracing what God has said and you're saying, I'm not sure. Today's the day of salvation. Trust in the Lord today because He can wash away all your sin. And He wants to give you eternal life. But you must trust in Him. He's very clear here. The fearful. Now, some will read that and say, well, I have fear sometimes. Does that mean I'm not going to heaven? Fear is someone who does not have faith. Someone who does not have faith is fearful. They're more concerned about what they can see in this world rather than having faith in God and and His Word and what He says. You know, I read you some statistics at the beginning of the message, and there are a lot of people right now living in fear. I'm not speaking about those who say, I'm trying to take care of my health and take care of my family. We need to do that. That's not a fearful thing to exercise common sense, right? But it is a fearful thing to stop serving God because I don't know what's going to happen in the world, so I need to just not do anything for the Lord. That's a fearful thing. And many so-called Christians, I think, have done more of the last few months to reveal that. Maybe they didn't have the faith that they thought they did because they were more fearful than anything else. By fearful, I mean this has been demonstrated for a long time. There was no desire to follow God, they were fearful about what others might say. There was no desire to walk faithfully for the Lord. Well, I follow God, but I just keep that to myself. It's a secret. Why? Because they're afraid. Don't be fearful. Trust in the Lord. And he says, and the unbelieving, these are the faithless. These are those who say, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what you say is right. I don't believe. A lot of people today, and more and more all the time, say, I just don't believe in anything. I don't believe in God I just believe in myself. I believe in humankind's ability to just make themselves better. We often, as we read this list, jump right down to the abominable, murders, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, right? <laughs> but don't jump past those first two, because unfortunately I think there are many churches full of fearful unbelievers don't let that be you trust in the lord today now obviously we know these pagans these very visibly wicked people are not going to be in heaven the abominable the murderers the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters but he then he gives another one at the end of the list that also i think speaks to some of the self-righteous so-called christians he says and all liars I'm not saying if you're a Christian today that you have to be worried about not going to heaven. What I'm saying is the people that call themselves to be Christians but aren't really saved because they haven't trusted in the Lord and, it's, and they're not living for the Lord, those are the people that have to be concerned. There is judgment for sin. There will be no sin in heaven. Confess your sin today. Look up. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament. It's not talking about heaven, but just talking about the importance of our perspective and our focus. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 6. The king of Syria was on the warpath. He was coming to try to destroy the nation of Israel. And as he brought his armies, and as they went around, they would come to try to attack the Armies of Israel, and every time they try to attack, the armies of Israel would be in a different place. Somehow, the smaller, weaker army of Israel kept avoiding the larger, more powerful army of Syria, and the king of Syria was really upset. He's running all around, looking like he's a chicken with his head cut off. You know, he's like, I don't know what I'm doing. And somebody tells the king of Syria, "You know, it's Elisha, the man of God, keeps telling the king, the king of Israel, where to take his troops to avoid you." So the king says, well, we need to catch Elisha. We need to stop Elisha. And somebody comes to the king and he says, Elisha staying in Dothan. This is one of the towns there. And so during the night, one night, the king of Syria brought his army and he surrounded the city of Dothan. So the next morning when Elisha's servant woke up, woke up and probably like most of you, you know, rubbed the sleep out of his eyes and he walked out of the house or tent or wherever they were staying, and he looked up. He didn't need coffee to wake up that morning, (laughs) because he was surrounded, they were surrounded by the armies of Syria. At that time, one of, if not the most powerful armies in the world. And he runs back in to Elisha and says, What are we going to do? We're surrounded! And Elisha said, don't be afraid. Those that are with us are greater than those that are against us. And then he prayed to God. And he said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. The Bible tells us, you check me, go back and read it. 2 Kings 16, or chapter 6. He said he looked up into the hills and he saw the armies of God And the chariots of fire, you know, those are a real thing, not just the name of a movie. The chariots of fire surrounding the armies of Syria. God saved his people that day. But what did that man need in his moment of fear as he looked around him and all he could see? He needed God to open his eyes and to look up and to see God's salvation. And maybe you're here this morning. You came in burdened down, discouraged, struggling. You're thinking about what you have this week, this month, this year. I don't know what we're going to do. Can I encourage you to look up? He's got an inheritance prepared for you. He's got a home prepared for you. And your heavenly Father is making this place so that he can dwell with you. Would you cast your burden on the Lord today and trust in him? Look up. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, trust in the Lord today. If nothing, surely during these times, God is using this to get your attention, to say, Wake up. I, I, I can't do this. I am weak. I don't know what to do. Look to the Lord. Trust in Him. Ask Him to forgive you. In just a moment, we're going to stand to our feet, and the piano is going to play, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite people to come. And if you'd like to trust Christ as your Savior, you come, and we'll take a Bible and show you how you can know that you're going to heaven someday. And if you're here this morning, say, I know I'm going to heaven, but I haven't been living like it. I've been discouraged, I've been frustrated, I've been upset, I've been distracted. I need to look up again and be reminded of what God's done. I would invite you to come as well and give that to the Lord. Say, God, help me this week. Lord, you know what I'm carrying around. You know what my burden is. You know what my concern is. God, I want to give it to you this morning. And I want to live for you this week.